Today's scripture readings will be from both Matthew and 2 Samuel. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Well, good morning. It is so good to be with the people of God. It is so good to be able to join with our voices raised in praise of our great and glorious King. There's beauty in one person worshiping the sovereign God of the universe. That is beautiful. There is greater wonder and joy to be found in the local collection of the saints. Greater still is the chorus that rings forth around the world and throughout time as the redeemed join with all the angels to celebrate the wonder and the holiness of God. What we do here this morning, local bodies of Christ do around the world, just as they have done for thousands of years. Don't forget that. This must not become just rote tradition or a collective muscle memory. We gather to magnify the Creator of everything. Further still, we gather to celebrate the wonder of the Gospel in what our King has done for us. We need that wonder of the Gospel to permeate our every discussion. We ought to cultivate that wonder in which the angels yearn to look to see God's plan of redemption unfold. When we study God's Word, keep the big picture of redemption in mind. In turn, focus on the detail of each word, and then step back to see how each person, each experience, and each revelation contributes to the grand story. So it is our hope that our approach to the Gospel of Matthew will help us do just that. Each time we give special attention to the people and the stories referenced by Matthew in this Gospel, let it help shape and expand your big picture understanding of the unfolding of redemption. These are not just interesting historical tidbits. They are the real-time providential outworking of the covenant of redemption made between the Father and the Son before the world began. So join me in prayer once more as we get ready to look to the Word. Father, we need Your Spirit. Every hour we need Your Spirit. Every moment we need Your Spirit. But Father, as we gather to hear Your Word, we know that left to our own devices, we will mishear, misinterpret, misapply, misuse this precious gift that You have given us in Your Word. So, Father, we ask that you would do what you promised that the Helper, your Spirit, would do to bring things to mind, to understand, to illuminate the truth of your Word. Not what we want it to be, but what it is and what you have designed. Help us to know, to love, and to glorify you, Father. In Christ's name, amen. Last week, Siler taught us about a story of hope. A story of the redemption of one family 
that was in the midst of a very dark and unstable time. It was the story of Naomi, of Ruth, and Boaz. The story of a family already experiencing very hard situations and then was brought to the brink of ruin. Even so, in the midst of that darkness, God's people, they placed their trust in His Word and God brought forth blessings and joy where there had been only gloom and despair. Well, this week we're going to look at the eventual happy result of that family's redemption, which is the raising up of a people out of darkness. The rise of the line of kings in Israel. The redemption of that one family had implications far beyond their immediate needs. It both preserved the line of the divinely chosen earthly king of the people and the line of the one who would be both man and yet more than man, the one who would be of David and yet greater than David, the one who would be for Israel, yet also for the world. That story, as do all the stories we will focus on in the line of Christ, gives us the categories and the foundation on which we might be able to understand the person and the work of Jesus. That is why Matthew gives us this genealogy. It helps us to understand both the need of a Savior and to understand how He is able to save. The the book of Ruth took place during the heart of the age of the judges in Israel. The age of the judges officially came to an end when the kingdom was established. That last faithful judge to the people, Samuel, As he neared the completion of his service, as he got into late into life, he was tasked by God to give Israel its first and then ultimately its second king. Israel was first given Saul as a king, and then before Saul was dead or his line failed, the anointing of God will be given to another. Today we will be looking at the life of and importance of David. Now just as we mentioned as we started this series talking about Abraham, I don't think it's possible to overplay the importance of David for the Jewish people, for their history, and for their national identity. Matthew began his account of the life and ministry of Jesus with these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Out of all the names that would be included in this genealogy, Matthew singles out two, David and Abraham. Their stories were of unique importance in the establishment of the Jewish people, and they are of unique importance for us to understand the Messiah that God would send to His people. Now, after Samuel while he was acting as a judge for the people, after he led Israel in defeating the Philistines, he realized his time was coming to an end. He named his sons to be judges after him in his place. Unfortunately, or simply providentially, his sons were not honest men. text says that they perverted justice. The people rejected Samuel's sons, and they demanded a king. They wanted a king to judge them, just like all the nations around them had. Well, we read the final days of the era of the judges and the demand for an establishment of a king in Israel in 1 Samuel 8. And I'll read the first eight verses. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, 
but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. Well, Samuel, believe, I believe, expected things to continue after him the way they had been for many generations. And he thought to mitigate the propensity for the Israel to return back to pagans. That's uh, paganism. A- a time after time through the area of the judges, God would raise up a judge after Israel had been in captivity or they had been oppressed. This judge would be mighty, would deliver the people, and the people would be faithful to God while that judge remained. And after that judge was dead and gone, the people once again turned to idolatry. I believe Samuel was trying to avert that, and he named his son so that there would be continuation of judges after him. But his sons were not up to the task. And based on the response of the people, it seems that they were already tired of the way things had been going on generation after generation all the way back to Joshua. The people were tired of being different than everyone around them. They were tired of waiting for God to speak or waiting for God to send a judge to guide them or to help them. They wanted to be just like the nations, to have a king reign over them and to judge them. Well, you might think that request seems reasonable. After all, they hadn't exactly been thriving under the system of the judges all these years. It makes sense that they would want the stability, the steady direction, the unifying will of a king. Doesn't it? The nations all around them had kings. The same nations that time and again seemed to get the upper hand on them and to put them into subjection. But how did God respond to their request, their demand for a king. Well, he gave them the king they demanded, but he also understood that demand to be an act of idolatry. Now, don't be embarrassed if you don't see right away how the desire for a king was idolatrous, especially when you think of all the imagery that we have of the kings in Israel pointing forward to the Messiah. The heart of this people is laid bearer later on in the chapter, and we'll get some clarity on that. What is critical here is that God recognized their demand to be the latest in a long line of rejection of God, His rule, and His chosen servants. Even so, God instructed Samuel to give the people what they demanded. Before he did, however, Samuel gave them a series of warnings about just what a king would mean. I'll read that from 1 Samuel 8, 10-18. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, These will be the ways of a king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war, and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards to give to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyard and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of, of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flock and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Notice the warnings that Samuel gave to the people about what having a king would mean for them. A king would take their children to man his armies or to be his servants. 
A king would take their resources, the best of everything that they had. A king would make each and every one of them serve him. Samuel actually said he would make you his slaves. Well, if you don't think that sounds too different from the treatment the people received from the pagan nations throughout the area of the judges, you might be on to something. After this warning, the people responded in verse 20, No, but we shall be a, have a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Well, that makes the intention of their heart a little bit more clear, doesn't it? What did Israel have before God gave them a king? God even answers in that passage, from the beginning, God had been their king. God had given them the law. God established the structures and the inner workings of their society. God gave them the priesthood. He gave them prophets. And then when the people failed over and over again, He raised up judges to lead them, to fight for them, to deliver them. Through it all, God directed His people through His chosen means and through His chosen servants. And how had the people all too often responded through this time when God was their king? Time and again, they didn't trust the Word of God. And they turned after idols and the false gods of the nations. They either tried to worship God in ways that He had not commanded them, or they abandoned Him altogether in hopes that someone else, some other God, would serve them better or deliver them from their trials. So because of their intentions, because of where their heart was at when they asked for a king, their demand for a king was in fact an act of faithlessness towards the leading and the protecting of God. It was turning to idolatry. They wanted someone they could see, someone they could touch, someone that was in their midst that they could talk to, to be as as God unto them. They were looking for someone in whom to place their trust. They were looking for someone to judge for them what was right, what was wrong. How should they go forth or how should they come out? They wanted someone to fight for them. Someone to provide for them victory and security. They wanted what they believed all the nations around them already possessed. They ignored the warnings of Samuel about what a king would take from them. And God gave them the king they desired. Saul was a man of means from a wealthy family He was a choice and handsome man. It said that he was a head taller than anyone else around. He was impressive. He was imposing. Samuel anointed Saul king over all Israel. Of course, for a while in Saul, the people had some success. At various times, he defeated the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Zobahites, the Philistines, the Amalekites. He routed the enemies of Israel. Yet, Saul made rash vows, nearly costing him the life of his son Jonathan. He acted presumptuously, going against the direct instructions of God's prophets. He made unlawful sacrifices. And ultimately, he deliberately disobeyed the command of God after he had been given victory, and then God rejected him. The throne would go to another. See, Saul did not obey the command of the Lord, therefore the Lord rejected him as king over Israel. Because of his refusal to obey God, Saul was told that the kingdom would be ripped from him and be given to his neighbor. Then the Lord sent Samuel to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem, for he had chosen a king for himself out of Jesse's sons. As Ryland read for us earlier, 
Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. See, Saul was, in a way, the rebuke of the Lord toward Israel for their lack of trust in him, for their demand for a king to rule over them, that they might be like the nations, rather than being that chosen, set-apart, holy people for God's own possession, as God had called them. Saul was what they desired in a king. Someone that could strike fear into the hearts of their enemies. Yet God had a different qualification for the king he desired. A king that would be a man after his own heart. We don't find Saul in the genealogy of the Messiah. We find the one who came after. Not the king who the people demanded, but the king that God chose. And a very unlikely king. A man through whom God would establish a throne that would reach beyond the sinful, idolatrous desires of the people for a king and that would provide for the salvation of all who truly believed. In 1 Samuel 16, we find an account of Samuel in the house of Jesse after he had been told to go there to look for a king among his household. Each of Jesse's sons was paraded in front of Samuel one by one in order of their birth. When he saw Jesse's oldest son, Eliab, he thought this must be the one that God had chosen because of his stature, his demeanor. But the Lord warned him, Do not look on the appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Of course, Samuel, like many of us, was a bit slow to learn. He had seen Eliab, and he judged his abilities, his worthiness, in much the same way the people had judged with Saul, on his appearance, on the height of his stature. Jesse made all of his sons pass before Samuel. Each time, the Lord told him that he was not the one that was chosen. And after all the sons had been paraded before him, Samuel had to ask, Are there no more? And then Jesse called for his youngest son, who was out tending the sheep. When David came in, the Lord told Samuel to anoint him. And then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily on David from that day forward. See, David was a very unlikely choice to become king. He was the youngest son of an unimportant family, a family that just a few generations ago was on the brink of complete extinction. Just remember the events of the story of Ruth and Boaz. When Samuel was told to go to Jesse's house, it was not in anyone's mind that David might be chosen. He wasn't even brought in to meet Saul or Samuel. He was so unlikely a candidate that he was left out to tend to the sheep. He didn't possess any of the kind of stature, the kind of demanding authority and respect like Saul did or his older brother. Of course, there would be another from the line of David who would appear a very unlikely king. There would be one who would be born in a time when Israel had not had a king for many years. Another child would be born to an unimportant family. That time to a carpenter. That child would once again show Israel that the deliverance of God was different than what they expected. Even though David was chosen by God, even though David was anointed by Samuel, he was not immediately accepted by Israel as king. His entrance onto the royal household, the scene with the royal household, was when he visited a war camp to bring supplies to his brothers as Israel was camped against the Philistines. His faith in God's ability to deliver and his anger at the blasphemy of the enemy drove David to challenge the, the, the giant Goliath to single combat. With that victory, 
he secured victory for the entire army of Israel. And at that point, David was welcomed into the service of Saul and eventually would even be given the daughter of Saul as a wife. David remained faithful in faithful service to Saul, proving his loyalty and becoming like a brother to Jonathan until Saul multiple times tried to kill him and drove him out. David was made an outcast. He was made a fugitive running for his life. He had been rejected by man because of the calling that God had placed on him. Because of the favor that God had showed him. As a fugitive, when David found kindness from the priests of Nob, Saul had them all slaughtered. David continued to run, to hide, until he came to the cave of Adullam. While he was hiding, hundreds of people came out to David, seeking refuge with him. His family came to him. Because of David, they were in danger. Saul was going to wipe them out as well. Beyond his family, everyone who was in distress came out to David. Everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontent, gathered with David. They made him their leader, and they followed him. David, anointed by God to be king over all Israel, began his reign as the leader of outcasts and criminals, of both Jews and Gentiles. It was the down and out of Israel that sought help from David, and it was also the Gentiles torn by war and heartache that would seek to serve this future king. David was rejected in his proper place as the next king of Israel, yet he was accepted by a great number of people, and he was loyally followed by those who knew they had nowhere else to turn. Of course, many generations later, a son of David would find himself in much a similar position as his ancestor. We read of Jesus in John 1, 10 through 13. John says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Even though Jesus had made the world, even though Jesus came to his own as a Jew among Jews, he was not accepted. Much like his ancestor, the rejection that Jesus faced from those that should have hailed him as king did not leave him without a people to lead. See, all authority has been given to Jesus. He rules in the hearts of those in whom His Spirit is set as a seal and a promise. He rules now as He sits on the throne at the right hand of the Father forevermore. Jesus is Lord. He does not require anyone to give Him permission to be Lord. He is Lord. Yet, even while He walked this earth, even while he was being rejected by those he came to, those who were, who were his own, he gathered to himself a great multitude of followers wherever he roamed. Much like David in the cave, those who were in distress and those who were discontent came out to meet and follow Jesus. He was a friend to tax collectors and sinners. And many would face great persecution due to their loyalty to Him, to their refusal to abandon Him, even after He was no longer on this earth. Well, the reign of David on the throne of Israel would bring an end to a very dark time in their history during the time of the judges. David would unite the twelve tribes of Jacob under one banner, and under one true faith. David's throne served as a beacon of light for the name of the Lord among the nations. 
this light shone brightly as David would finally complete the conquest of the promised land, as he would finally drive out the inhabitants of Canaan from Israel, as he would redeem Jerusalem from the pagan worshipers and establish there a kingdom for God's people, preparing the city for the temple of worship to Almighty God. David was not the first king of Israel. He was not the king of the people's demands or their intentions, but he was the king of God's design. When the people demanded a king, it was not for the glory of God. It was not so that the name of the Lord might be magnified among the nations. It was so that they might be like the nations around them. Far from standing out as a beacon, they wanted to blend in. God gave them a king after His own heart. God gave them a king that would fulfill His design, not ultimately just for the nation of Israel, but a king who would have dominion over all of creation. Saul ruled while he lived, yet the house of David would rule as long as there was in Israel first as a nation, and ultimately as spiritual Israel under the reign of Jesus Christ. David wasn't allowed to build a temple or a house of worship for God. He desired to, but his life had been filled with bloodshed. So he was denied that honor. His son would build a temple for his God, though, but David would not live to see it. God made a promise to David concerning his son in 2 Samuel 7, 13-16. That he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Well, we're going to see in the time between David and Jesus just how strong the rods and the strokes of men would be. There's a long line of failing kings long line of idolatry and wickedness, of sinning and turning away, and a long time where Israel would be punished, be disciplined, ultimately culminating as Christ came to identify with His people, to bear the sin and the guilt of His people. And Christ is the proof that the loving kindness of God did not depart from the house of David. In Christ, the throne of Jesus is established forever. David was the first fruit of the promise of the King of Glory, whose enemies God would place under His footstool as a footstool under His feet. David brought together the the twelve tribes of Israel under one rule. Yet from his house, one would come who would unite all the peoples of the earth in one common salvation. The descendant of David would not be like the kings of the earth. Just as in the days of the prophets, the reign of Christ would one day bring God's people directly under His direction again. In Jesus, all authority would rest in His being the very Son of God. His will is the will of the Father, for He and the Father are one. The very unlikely nature of David becoming king of Israel, once again, points to God's providential hand at work in redemptive history. David was the youngest son of Jesse. That meant he should have been last among Jesse's sons, to receive an inheritance among his brothers. But of course, David was from a long line of unlikely successors. Isaac was not the firstborn of Abraham, but he was the child of promise. 
He received the inheritance as his older brother Ishmael was driven away. Jacob was not the first son born to Isaac, yet he obtained the blessing and the birthright over his older brother Esau. Judah was not the firstborn son of Jacob, yet before he died, Jacob proclaimed that the scepter would not depart from Judah. Through Judah and the determination of his daughter-in-law, the line continued. Tamar gave him twin sons, and even though Zerah appeared to be coming first, Perez usurped him in the birth order. We read in Romans 9, 11-13, how God chooses some and chooses to bless even someone who might be an unlikely person. And Paul writes there, Though they were not yet born and had nothing wrong, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. On that passage, Paul is speaking directly about the children of Jacob, or Jacob, the children of Isaac, how Jacob received the blessing over his older brother. Yet I think the principle stands in all of these cases. God used the unlikely child time and again in the line of David and the line of Christ in order to show that God's will and purpose would stand. The more unlikely the means, the greater is our ability to see the hand of God at work. Not only did the blessing of the line of kings pass down in an unexpected manner, but we, we have in these past weeks seen how God used unexpected outsiders as well to continue the line of the king, as we saw most clearly in David's ancestors, Ruth and Rahab. Of course, God had always intended that there would be a king to rule over his people. Yet it would not be as the people desired, and it would not be of their will. David was but a shadow of the Messiah that would one day come from his house. His kingdom, like the law of Moses, was intended to point to and to prepare the way for Christ. It was to display the complete necessity of Christ. Because even with all the splendor and glory of David's kingdom, Israel was still in desperate need of a Savior. The kingdom established by David was an immediate and partial answer to many of the troubles of the needs of Israel, yet it was never the complete answer. With David as king and Solomon after him, Israel saw the greatest success it would ever experience as a nation. But if you know anything of the history, this golden age would not last long. Its failure was set in motion early on in the reign of the king, its greatest king, David. Because David was far from a perfect king. His failures guaranteed that there would be turmoil in his family and in his kingdom. In 2 Samuel 12, 10 and through 12, we see the result of his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. After David's act of adultery and the murder to try and cover it up, Sexual sin and violence would stain and would define his house. Consider some of these events that followed. And this list is not exhaustive. The child born out of that adulterous relationship would die. That is not to say that everyone who loses a child does so because of, directly because of their sin. But in this case, we are actually told of the correspondence. David's son Ammon would lust uncontrollably after his half-sister Tamar. After, acting out of that lust, he raped her sister. 
And then he cast her away and abandoned her as his lust, once it was acted upon, turned to hatred. It actually says that in the end he hated her with a hotter hatred than if he previously had loved her. Absalom, another one of David's sons, would eventually kill his brother Ammon for this. And later, Absalom conspired against his father, causing David to flee Jerusalem. And while Absalom sat on the throne in Jerusalem, he made a public display of having his way with David's concubines, took a bet up on the roof for everybody in Israel to see, and he took his father's wives, just as Nathan had warned would happen. In order to reclaim his, his throne, David had to lose yet another child. It took Absalom's death to bring David back to Jerusalem. In his old age, there was division among his children. There was arguments about who would succeed him when David died. Adonijah, the oldest son, claimed the throne for himself. Yet David wanted Solomon to rule, so he had Nathan anoint him as king. Eventually, providentially, Solomon won the day, though not without conflict. For a short time, things looked pretty good under Solomon. Him being a great man of wisdom had the nation prosper and grew in influence around and respect among the nations. Of course, Solomon was not free from the effects of sexual sin. Solomon took 700 wives and added 300 concubines on top of that, many of those from around the nations. And it shouldn't come as a shock to anyone but that that didn't turn out to be beneficial in keeping Solomon faithful to the law of God. We read in 1 Kings 11, 4-8, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, of the abomination of the Amorites, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountains east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. Well, at least one of those names of those false gods should sound familiar. In years to come, the people of Israel would offer their sons and their daughters as sacrifices to Molech. The paganism established in Israel under Solomon would be continued to be a blight of the nation for many generations. Solomon left the kingdom to his son Rehoboam. Rehoboam refused to listen to his father's advisors on how to lead the people and instead followed the foolishness of his peers. And in no time at all, he fractured the kingdom. And from that time forward, only two of the tribes of Israel would honor the descendant of David. So catch this. The United Kingdom of Israel only lasted two generations. The golden age of Israel lasted two generations, and we have seen that in those two generations, there was bloodshed, there was paganism, there was perverse sexual sin at the highest levels. And what would follow would be a long series of failure after failure. And we're going to see just how bad things got over the next couple weeks as we consider the pre-exile and the post-exile kings of Judah in the line of Christ. So clearly, David did not accomplish all that the people needed. Though he was a man after God's own heart, he was still a man who struggled with his flesh. He was not able to save himself, much less the entire nation. If the story ended with David 
and the next two generations, then this story would be a sad tale indeed. The golden age of the kingdom of Israel left much to be desired. But David is not the end. David is yet another link in the chain of providence that God was building throughout history in his plan of redemption. He was working out his plan to send his son down to earth to be the great king. The one through whom and for whom are all things. David on his throne and in his splendor is yet further evidence and proof that the best of men can offer no salvation. God must save, and God alone. Only one man in Scripture is called a man after God's own heart. I dare say that none of us will have the heart for God and His majesty like David as we walk on this earth. To this day, we continue to look to his Psalms. It's the hymn book of the church. We look to his writings, his heart, his crying out to God for inspiration. Yet David was still a man in need of a Savior. Without exemption, we are all in need of a Savior. We are in desperate need of the true King who gave himself for his people. Not who enforced his people into slavery, taking the best of everything that they had, but a king who would give up himself for his people. If you still hold out hope that you may be able to do this on your own, that you be able to, may be able to stand before God on your own, learn from David. He was a better man than you or I will be. He had every advantage, yet he committed the sin that brought chaos to the house, that led Israel astray and brought the kingdom to ruin. Hear these words today. We need the promised king. We need Jesus. We need his reign in our lives. His kingdom to be our greatest goal. We need His Spirit within us. If we do not call the heed, heed the call of the King of Kings, if we do not call out to Christ and trust in Him, there is no hope because there is no salvation following after Him. With David and with every point in history before Christ, there was always the hope of the One who was to come. He has Come, there is no one else. All of, point, all of history points to Him. God worked in wondrous ways to protect the family line for Him. There is no other. May God give us eyes to see all that He is and all that He has done. Well, as I draw it into an end this morning, I want to leave us with a couple of questions that I think we ought to ask ourselves. In what or in whom am I looking for clarity about what is right and what is wrong? And the second question, in what or in whom am I trusting to fight my battles for me, to guide me and protect me? You see, the answer to those questions is of grave importance. These are the questions that the people of Israel were asking themselves when they demanded a king. And just to be clear, they had already determined that the God of Abraham and their fathers wasn't who they were going to look to. The earliest creed of the New Testament church was simply, Jesus is Lord. They answered this question differently than Israel had so long before. They looked to Christ. They looked to His commandments as the basis for what was right and what is wrong. They knew that His way was the only way of salvation that they desperately needed. And they knew that His victory, the gospel victory, was their victory. It was their rallying cry. Beloved, you cannot improve on that. Follow the faithful example of the saints that have come before. 
Do not place your trust in men. Do not look to the institutions of men to provide you meaning or clarity in life. Do not look to the state to define what is right and wrong. They cannot tell you how you should live. Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord. All authority is His. Live for Him. Follow Him. Father, there is no one else we want. Give us Christ. Give us the Gospel. We, we seek no other salvation. We seek no other rescue or victory. We cling to Christ. We cling to His victory. His sinless life. His perfect sacrifice. His perfect rule. His perfect law. Father, don't let us look to any other. Don't let us desire any other. Keep us from idolatry. Keep us from putting our faith and our trust in anything else. Father, keep us in Christ. I thank You, Lord, that You have promised that there is nothing that can take us out of Your hand. Help us to stand bold. To be certain in our minds and our hearts whose law we follow, whose commands we obey. And do not let this world turn us aside and forbid it that we would ever seek to be more like the world rather than being the, light, the city on a hill the light and the darkness for the glory in the name of Christ. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.